Welcome to Risk Roundup. Nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia, in short referred to as NGIOA, are going through the next wave of digital disruption that is driven largely by artificial intelligence, in short referred to as AI. There are numerous reports that artificial intelligence has convincingly penetrated into general applications across NGIOA. From medical diagnosis to stock trading, robot control to remote sensing, thousands of artificial intelligence applications have already been getting deeply embedded in the infrastructure of individuals and entities across NGIOA. These are just some examples. As we go forward, entities across NGIOA will surely go beyond basic tasks like computing data and collecting metrics to developing more intelligent algorithms to strengthen some of the most important operational, tactical, and strategic technologies and initiatives. This is expected to impact and change not only technology, but also business, management, and governance models in cyberspace, geospace, and space. So what does all this mean? It means that if the decision makers across NGIOA are not thinking about artificial intelligence, machine-based learning, deep learning, and intelligent machines now, then they run the risk of their initiatives, products, services, and businesses being undoubtedly disrupted in the coming years. Intelligent machines are here, and the question is whether we, the individuals, and entities across NGIOA are prepared for what is to come. To discuss this further, I'm delighted to welcome Mark Stein, CEO of Underwrite and Principal at Artificial Intelligence Capital Management. Welcome, Mark. We're delighted to have you on Risk Roundup. Thank you. Very nice to be here with you. Wonderful, Mark. So it seems that intelligent machines are already here, Mark. Are individuals and entities across NGIOA prepared for what is to come? Well, yes. Um, I think that um, uh, it's important to specify what we mean by um, artificial intelligence in, in terms of how it's actually being applied in production today. Um, there is no generalized artificial intelligence. When we talk about artificial machines, somewhat of a, a misnomer or intelligent machines is somewhat of a misnomer. Um, <clears throat> the way that AI is being used today is in very, very narrowly focused areas. So particularly in, say, visual recognition, speech recognition, captioning, things of that sort. Um, it's playing a key role in the development of autonomous vehicles. But these systems are in no way thinking systems. They simply do a simple task which uh, would take a human being more time. So, for instance, um, when we talk about the use of AI in banking, there's really very little um, AI actual implementation in banking. What you'll start to see more of is the development of customer service bots, where you, when you uh, have a chat session with your bank and you're asking about your balance and, and a return check, that much of that will be mediated initially by um, a bot. This is an implementation of artificial intelligence, 
But no one should confuse the the chat bot with an intelligence such as possessed by a human being. Uh, I I read some reports that there are some companies who have developed. Uh, AI based trading and they are they have actually tried out AI based trading and uh, successfully so AI which uh, AI driven trading stock trading. trading well you have um, a lot of funds that are doing high frequency trading based upon algorithms these are not artificial intelligence algorithms these are simply statistical algorithms so the main advantage of high-frequency trading is that it can evaluate, you know, thousands of data points in, in a portion of a second and make a trading decision. But these are not really uh, uh, value-driven determinations. They, these are high-frequency trading systems are, are looking for arbitrage opportunities um, in, um, in disparity between two exchanges, all right? They're looking for very, very small uh, incremental differences. So um, I would hesitate to call any of those things artificial intelligence. Um, we, we do use machine learning in what we do um, for finding arbitrage opportunities in peer lending assets, and that's a particularly good application. Um, there, so you do have the use of advanced algorithms and um, more advanced computer techniques used uh, particularly among hedge funds, um, but uh, I would hesitate to call it um, artificial intelligence. Goldman Sachs has been doing some work with deep learning in the financial services area. Um, it's not at all clear that anything has actually been deployed. You know, art, um, uh, artificial neural networks um, were tested pretty extensively in the mid-90s in the banking industry. Uh, Countrywide did a very large test uh, for mortgage underwriting using uh, ANNs. Um, the determination really was that um, it's not ready for prime time. It really didn't work. It worked well enough in, uh, in terms of efficacy, but it wasn't ready for a production rollout because ANNs were simply too brittle and computationally too, um, too in, intense for uh, the state-of-the-art in computer equipment then. Um, what's really changed is with deep learning is not so much that the technology has improved, although it has, but that the computers have improved and the cost of computing has come down. So now you can throw the computational resources at the problem that you could only dream about in the 90s. So we are seeing more progress in the deep learning space today um, than we saw in the 90s. But if you go back and you look in the literature, you'll see um, a lot of stories that came out about how AI was taking over the mortgage space and the banking space in, in 1995. Uh, it, that was somewhat preliminary. It, it never happened. Uh, I, major banks today don't, don't use most of these technologies. I'd say that 99.9% .9 of major bank underwriting is done in the traditional linear regression model using FICO scores and debt-to-income ratios.
Yes, but there is no way, Mark, to know exactly what is the state of progress and development when it comes to private corporations, because these are very private and proprietary technologies, and they are not going to share all the details. But one thing remains sure is that the digital global age, massive data explosion, cloud computing, cybersecurity, cyber warfare, machine learning, and rise of intelligent machines, and more that combines to make progress, development, human survival and sustainability a very defining challenge of our time. So from your perspective, I mean, as you said, you know, we are still into the artificial narrow intelligence phase and we haven't reached the artificial general intelligence. We don't know when we'll be, you know, reaching there, as you are saying. No, it, it, it won't occur. <laughs> yes. I mean, it will happen, but... Uh, no. No. There are conflicting reports. I mean, the, there are some places you read that, you know, that has already occurred. Some places we read that, like you are saying, that, you know, we are still uh, uh, in the artificial narrow intelligence. So we'll wait and see. But the uh, fact is that there is a lot of progress and development happening, which is, you know, promising in a lot of uh, ways. But it also is causing a lot of concern. But across which components, that is uh, government, industries, organizations, and academia of nations, you see that we have already achieved artificial intelligence uh, given proven applications so far. I mean, we have been having uh, some sort of use of artificial narrow intelligence for so many you know, years. We have seen that in our computers and you know, our smartphones everywhere. But which are the major proven applications that you can talk about that these are you know, some achievements that we have achieved? Well, the, the one that's probably gotten the most uh, publicity over, over the last year was AlphaGo, which was Google's effort to create um, a Go uh, machine that would be able to beat uh, a human Go champion. Um, and it was a great accomplishment, uh, but again, within a very, very narrow area. So what to me, what it really represents is that Google spent $500 million and a massive amount of computational resources, hundreds and hundreds of engineers, um, to build a system that could play a single game. And they were able to effectively build a system that performed very well. Um, but in terms of, is this an artificial intelligence? Well, this... AlphaGo couldn't play checkers, couldn't play chess. It certainly couldn't underwrite a loan or diagnose uh, cancer. All it could do is simply recognize board states and calculate um, the best path forward from a given board state. Um, to me, that's, I mean, from an academic sense, it's an interesting accomplishment. It's, I don't know that it's a great use for $500 million. But I think that that really points out where the problem is. So the, in the popular media, there was a great deal of discussion that AlphaGo meant that human beings were going to be replaced by computers because finally this very strategic, difficult board game could be played better by a computer than a human being. Um, it's a very, very long jump to the notion that computers can replace human beings for thought-intensive products from that. And that's really the most advanced case. It is like this, Mark. When a child is born, it takes a lifetime for the child to learn you know, all kinds of things. 
one year they learn different things in two years three years four years so i think that 500 million dollars you're talking about a child is born which is you know not human and it is going to take many many years before it's able to learn everything so to expect that uh, and to hope that you know it learns everything in just few years it is uh, probably you know unrealistic so we are onto something really interesting but it's going to take many more years before we are able to teach everything to that you know child i'd like to point one thing out and and it's an interesting comparison when talking about children's and computer um uh, a child has uh over a billion neurons yes a child has trillions of neuronal connections so each of those neuronal connections can hold weight values additionally each cell in the human body has 2500 uh protein encoding genes each of which can hold expression values um there is no way that you can construct a computer out of silicon that can rival the construction of the human brain so the learning capability of a human being is infinitely greater than any silicon based computer you can argue that you could eventually build general artificial intelligence using um cloned neurons you know we do know today that we can uh clone neurons in vitro and that they will uh clump into functional elements they'll start forming connections so it would be possible to build at some point in in the relatively distant future a um uh a artificial brain and by increasing the number of neurons you could potentially come close to the performance of a child right now the performance of these computer systems is much much closer to the performance of a flatworm than uh, a human child yes. so we're very very far away from a general artificial intelligence my personal belief is that there are a great many constraints that prevent it from happening ever um most most likely the construction the, the difference in construction between um human neuronal systems and computers it's it's an interesting metaphor to talk about you know um neural networks as modeled on the human brain but um it, it's a very um it's a very cursory similarity you you said there are some constraints that prevented the you know further advances what are those um well the nature of a digital computer is is inherently much um uh, much less flexible than the way that a human brain works mm -hmm. um the degree of parallelism in a human brain is unthinkable in computer terms so um the what a a human being starts with is um uh an ability to absorb and retain a much greater information than computer memory allows for 
one of the biggest instances that that you run into when you try to talk about artificial uh, a general intelligence is what we call common sense. Um, the the notion of of connections between um, meaning and and the context of things, um, and it's an intensely difficult problem from a computational standpoint. But just explaining um, that uh, a cat, you know, we, we all know what a cat looks like. But if you're trying to explain to a computer what a cat looks like and you happen to show a bobtail cat, the computer doesn't recognize a bobtail cat because in all the pictures you've shown, the, the, you know, the cat had a tail. So... Um, but a human being immediately recognizes that a cat without a tail is still a cat. That's an intensely difficult problem um, from a computational standpoint. So um, finding all these use cases and building uh, a sufficient understanding of the world around us is something that we're at uh, an incredibly preliminary stage. There was a, there was a, uh, a project called the Psych Project that ran for a number of years. It was heavily funded um, by the government, and it was an attempt to create a rule set around common sense. Um, I think they discovered that common sense is a really, really big topic, yeah. and codifying it all is um, intensely difficult. And until you have that base of understanding that we all take for granted, um, we're, we're not going to see this large-scale um, uh, implementation. What we will see, and, and I think this is a really important part, is that the traditional way that we evaluate risk or make decisions deals with taking a complex situation and reducing it to as small a number of predictive variables as possible because we tend to approach these things um, by defining a set of rules that then go into a matrix. So if we look at loan underwriting, which is, which is a key implementation, um, today <clears throat> a bank looks at the FICO score or the credit score of an applicant. They look at the debt-to-income ratio, so how much debt does a person have relative to their income. Um, they look at the count of inquiries made against a person's credit file. And they look at the repayment of debts in terms of 30-day late trades, 60-day late trades, 90-day late trades. So those are the four points that go into uh, modeling a credit determination. And they use a combination of exclusionary and inclusionary rules. So, for instance... Um, the bank may say, well, if someone's debt-to-income ratio is greater than 35%, we, we don't want to loan them more money. We think they're overextended. So that's a hard cutoff. Then there's a series of ranges. Well, if their FICO score falls between 680 and 720, here's the rate as long as there are no 30-day late trades and no 60-day late trades. So that's how underwriting works. Um, and it's pretty much universal, not just the United States. Um, what we find today, though, is when we do loan underwriting at, at Underwrite, there are 2,400 credit attributes that we're looking at. 
not for. And the methodology that you use for evaluating 2,400 attributes is radically different than what you would do with four. You can no longer create a rule set. As a matter of fact, you can't even create a rule set if you have 16 uh, predictive variables. Because the, you know, when we create a full rule set around four, we generate about 31 pages of rules. Now, imagine if you had 400 or 4,000. It simply isn't workable to use this kind of expert system, rule-based, human-engineered or algorithmic approach if you want to incorporate those additional data points. Now, we are only looking at credit attributes from a bureau. But if you're not looking at a regulated area like, um, like lending, and you're looking at something like marketing, right, where you don't have all the legal constraints as to the use of data, you want to look at things like their Twitter stream, their Facebook postings, um, how long they've had an email, how many emails they send. You want to look at actually hundreds of thousands of data points. And you need a different methodology for looking at those hundreds of thousands of data points. And machine learning gives us the methodology necessary for coping with the data overflow that is occurring today due to the fact that we live more and more of our lives in an electronically mediated environment. You know, we, we shop online, we communicate online, um, email has replaced the postal service, we bank online. Well, all of this generates data. Now, in the banking space, most of this data can't be used, right? It's, um, you can't decline a loan because of something somebody posted on Facebook. There's all sorts of federal laws that you would be breaking. It also wouldn't uh, be effective from a lending perspective. Uh, what people post on Facebook or how many friends they have is not predictive of whether they'll repay a loan or not. So um, there's, there are a lot of legal and regulatory constraints when you get into something like lending. But, but the big issue today is how do we bridge the gap between the methodologies we use for evaluating risk and making decisions and the, um, the amount of data that we're generating. And we should be clear, when, when your loan is being decisioned in a bank, more than likely it's running through a computer, but the computer's looking at these four variables. So when we make the transition to machine learning, all we're really doing is saying the computer's now looking at more variables. Um, the computer is still constrained by the same rules as... Um, a human underwriter would be, or the bank when they were using an older technology. Do you expect the rules to be That you broke up a little bit. Do you expect the rules, the to be like that for a long time, the regulatory constraints? Oh, yeah, the regulatory constraints. 
don't change because of the technology. The technology needs to change to adhere to the regulatory constraints. For instance, um, in the United States in lending under um, FCRA and ECOA, which are, are two you know, long-standing regulatory uh, structures, you cannot um, make a loan decision based upon uh, anything like uh, race, religion, age, color. You also cannot make a decision that you can't explain to the customer. So if you say to somebody, I'm not loaning you money, you can't say, well, my computer said I shouldn't loan you money. You have to say, well, I can't loan you money because you owe too much currently or um, you've had four late payments in the last two months. So, you know, you have to give a, a reason that they can understand. That's, that's a law. Now, that's not going to change. So if somebody develops an algorithm that's highly effective but is a black box and can't explain to someone why they were declined, you can't use it for lending in the United States. It's that simple. I, I, there's, there's no reason why that would change. The, the law exists for a perfectly valid reason. And I don't think anyone really would want that to change. Um, so, no, um, I, I just, I don't think that's an issue. Um, it's the same sort of thing, you know, people have raised the question of, if you have an autonomous car and it has an accident, who's at fault? Well, that's not really an unsettled area of law. The car is registered to an individual. Um, they crash their car. Now, if they want to sue the manufacturer of the car for a defect in the autonomous driving system, then that's going to be resolved through the legal process. And that's the way it should be. So this isn't really some kind of massive change that's occurring. There's a, a structure for doing this. You know, somebody said to me, well, what happens if you're driving your self-driving car and it goes too fast and you get a ticket and you get out of the ticket? No, <laughs> you can't get out of the ticket. You're, you're in the car and you're the licensed driver. So um, uh, the other aspect is that when you design an autonomous car, um, one of the constraints that you need to work with is you have to obey the traffic laws. So you, you can't have an autonomous car that goes through red lights because it'll get you there faster. So it's the same human environment. That's what you're doing, right? Um, the constraints of the human environment are something that has to be applied to, to the machines. Um, no one is going to give an exemption to an artificial construct uh, to break the law because it's made out of silicon. That makes sense. That yep. makes sense. So, Mark, uh, we talked about uh, the loan underwriting, and be before that, you talked briefly about some other financial processes. But where else do you see the role and processes of financial institutions? that are now being performed by intelligent machines. I, I mean, I heard that uh, the research analyst uh, role in the asset management industry is now possible to be performed by, you know, artificial intelligence. 
So where else do you see this uh, happening? Well, actually, I, I've had a lot of um, hedge funds and investment banks ask me, really. I, I was just at an AI conference in New York last week, and one of I had a number of people from funds and, and investment banks say, hey, we, we'd like to apply you know, more intelligent algorithms in research, right? Um, they're not doing it. They're talking about that they'd like to do it. Right. And these are really leading funds and, and, and banks. So I, I think that what is actually going on is that um, there are additional tools being developed that further empower the researcher or quantitative analyst um, to do more work more, effective, more effectively. So, so it's not to replace, but to... Not, it's not by any means to replace. It's to increase productivity. Now, you can argue that if you increase, if you double the productivity of a researcher, does that mean that that researcher can now take the place of two researchers from the past? Um, so there could be an effect in terms of staffing levels, but that's a far cry from the idea that complex financial research is going to be performed by an algorithm. The problem with uh, applying algorithms um, to financial markets is that um, financial markets are very, very complex. I mean, we deal with loan underwriting in the consumer space. It's a very simple kind of problem. Um, and uh, what we, our typical client is looking to decide whether they should give a a loan for $500 or $1,000 to somebody. Well, economically, they can't really uh, underwrite by hand for $500 loans. They see hundreds of requests a day. So they need to automate that process. On the other hand, I had somebody ask me about airplanes. They do airplane finance. Right? So they, they finance the purchase of a $50 million airplane. And they want to know, um, should they be using an algorithm? And the answer is like, well, you can use an algorithm as a sanity check. You can use it to help your underwriter. I personally write these algorithms for a living on a daily basis. If I were going to put $50 million in play, I would want a person who'd been doing it for a long time to make the final decision and not assume that an algorithm has all the data points that it needs to make a correct decision. It's more like having tools, using algorithms as a tool to get more intelligence, but the decision maker still remains the humans. Right? Absolutely. And I'll give you another example. We do a lot of work with, um, with cancer uh, research. One of the things that we do is we look at RNA microarrays. So we look at the expression levels of all the genes um, in uh, a cancer diagnosis. So the traditional model is to look, say in prostate cancer, at 13 genes as biomarkers. And what we found was by looking at 13 genes, the standard Keogen uh, prostate panel, um, the algorithms had uh, about a 73 to 75% accuracy. Um, by looking instead at a larger group of um, common tumor suppressor genes, um, we saw an 85% accuracy. But by looking at all 2,400 protein encoding genes, 
we got a 98% accuracy. So we know that this idea of looking at more data and not necessarily focusing on the assumptions that the scientist brings into play is very helpful. Now, where you go from there, though, is that once you've found that a model is highly effective at predicting cancer, it's fine from a diagnostic standpoint. But if you want to better understand um, how to prevent the cancer or why the cancer is occurring, you need, need to dig deeper. And so we then run a process called information gain theory um, on the models and we look to see what are the genes that most drive the correct decisions. Now, what you'll find when you do that is when you start looking at those genes, you'll find that a subset of the most predictive genes are predictive after the fact. They're predictive in that they're the body's response to a person having cancer. So if you're trying to determine does this person have cancer, this is a highly effective way to do it. But if someone has, say, uh, elevated gene expression for P10, well, that's not really telling you anything other than that they probably have cancer. It's not telling you why they have cancer. So this is where uh, a human then needs to look at what do we know about the genes that we've identified as being predictive? And can we separate out the ones that are predictive because they are tumor suppressors and find new genes that weren't in the past associated with prostate cancer? And does that give us uh, a path to a new target where we can deliver drugs? So um, this is a good example of where machine learning can revolutionize cancer diagnosis and research, and is doing so. But, but it's very complex. Mark, Mark is very complex, complex because if you look at it, sorry, sorry, as we advance in genomics and we have more details about the human genome, and as we progress, and just like, you know, how when we go to doctor for a checkup, they would order uh, blood work or, you know, all kinds of diagnostic tests. Maybe we'll reach a point where the doctors will routinely order the human genome, you know, analysis, personalized, you know, everybody's uh, genome analysis that uh, where do we stand, what kind of genes we have, you know, which are oh, yeah. The dominant or suppressant that is one factor so when we have the genome data of every individual you know available then using the artificial intelligence it would be much more easier to pinpoint what kind of genes you know humans have and you know under what conditions now here the environment also will play a role because it is not just about having genes but also what are the trigger factors what are the environmental factors that are going to cause the genes to express the fundamentals of gene expressions will also come into play. So if we can, I, I'm absolutely sure that, you know, we, we will be able to advance and uh, progress to a stage where algorithms would be able to uh, quickly 
understand which what genes you humans have the individual any individual has and which are the genes that are likely to cause cancer and what is the environment in which they are located and what are the environmental uh, trigger points that they have that would uh, come into play and that would probably you know give rise to cancer so you are absolutely right and you are on the right path where we will be able to come up with an effective way of diagnosing human cancer so i see that possibility happening that but other than apart from that where else do you see algorithms uh, or artificial intelligence playing an effective role when we talk about healthcare in general and hospitals and medicine that would benefit from machine learning oh a, a great many times. i i would also i would just mention as to the last point that the impediment to using uh full genomic scans and gene expression for uh for everyone is purely an economic one you know the cost today is about $1495 uh to do a scan on uh on an individual um and that is assuming that you submit at least 24 samples so it's still a pretty big ticket item at this point as we go further you know just like having technology will be very expensive but then the price will come down when it when it gets down to 100 dollars i i think uh you'll start to see um a fairly routine implementation where uh where uh, a sample will be sent off to a lab for sequencing and um we'll get gene expression and proteomics and and uh Uh, you know a, a a much richer understanding of of uh, individuals um biology um in in terms of other um uh implementations in medicine uh, i mean there's a huge amount of data that's uh, generated in uh in uh medicine uh just chart data and uh sensor data and all of that uh can be utilized to improve delivery of services and uh prediction of outcomes um we worked on a project in which um uh diabetes patients um were uh, we looked at uh hospitalizations of diabetes patients and we were looking at well how can you prevent recurrence of hospitalizations and we found just in the chart data for di- uh for for these patients um some strong indications that there were things that the hospital can do differently in in terms of how they um segment their um their patients which patients should be scheduled for more intensive rehab work um that there are a number of things that the, the hospital could do that would reduce um the readmission rate and i mean even common sense things like well if you take this cohort of patients and you extend their hospital stay initial hospital stay by 2 days you can eliminate this portion of the readmission so it's a strong economic incentive for the hospital to in fact do what seems counterintuitive which is to provide additional services or additional care to an individual who could theoretically be um uh, be discharged because it costs less in the long run 
Yes. So I, I think that there's, um, and this information was not something that was uh, hugely complex to, to derive, but it's one point, uh, one data uh, strategy among many. So by taking an approach of we're looking at a vast amount of data and we're trying to make sense of it, we discover these um, these trends that are very, very useful. I, yes. I think uh, cancer diagnosis itself will make a shift to being uh, based on genomics. Um, I think that's happening already. Um, that's going to just accelerate. Um, if you look at, um, back to prostate cancer, uh, a trained, highly skilled pathologist looking at a frozen section has maybe an 80%, 78 to 80% accuracy of actually identifying cancer in, in the sample. Um, we can do considerably better by looking at gene expression levels. That hardly means that there's not a place for pathologists. But yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, all these genomics and all this are uh, very good advances, and we would get uh, really accurate diagnosis. But I think to be able to beat cancer, to you know, win the war, like you know, so many people say, war on cancer, we need to also have focus on the environment, environmental toxins, because that plays a very important role. Just focusing on the diagnostic is not going to, you know, help us uh, win the war on cancer. But again, that's uh, such a complex, complex, you know, topic. There is so much that needs to be talked about that I think we don't have that much time to just right. focus on the cancer. But let, let's talk about, Mark, uh, the what I'm hearing these days is that there are a lot of reports that artificial intelligence that includes an emotional component is in the process of being embedded into everyday applications in the coming years, giving rise to emotionally intelligent machines. So it's like effective computing. Can you explain the need for that? And where do you see the benefits? Because, I mean, it seems very interesting that, you know, our machines, uh, robots or, you know, any artificial intelligence machines would be emotionally intelligent, to that they will be able to understand human emotions and be able to reciprocate that, respond with that. That seems really interesting. Well, um, you know, I just came back from this conference, um, and this was a, a point of discussion. Um, I would point out that, I mean, and some of the people who are leading the research in that area were there speaking. Um, they're just starting to work on this. So um, this is hardly in, you know, widespread implementation. It's still very much at the research paper um, phase. Um, I think what it amounts to is really the simulation of human emotion. Um, Silicon-based computers are not, obviously not capable of emotion. They're not capable of empathy. Um, they're not capable of, of negative feelings. Um, they're, they're purely um, uh, logical devices. So <clears throat> what what the effort is, is, well, how can we kind of model some human reaction so that we create what appears to be a more uh, 
effective um, uh, computing program. Um, it's like um, the famous Turing test, right? Uh, which which was used for many years as a, an example of artificial intelligence. Could you create a program that would fool people into thinking that it was a human being when in fact it was a computer? Well, that's not actually a test of artificial intelligence. That's a test of human gullibility. Um, this is the same sort of thing with effective computing is that, you know, we're, we're trying to create models that appear to be more, um, uh, more sympathetic or empathetic. Um, but it's essentially, it's, it's a trick. It's, it's, um, it, it's syntax manipulation. Um, to give you an example, I mean, when we build an algorithm, um, we specifically don't look at um, race or age or gender or sexual preference because to do so would be illegal. But we go further and we say, well, we don't look at zip codes because zip codes may be a proxy for race. Is it illegal to build an algorithm that looks at all these factors? It is illegal to, well, it is illegal to deploy for the purpose of lending an algorithm that would... Ah, from that, on that application. On those, right? So, but I would say that just as a, as a good practice, um, it's best to not focus on those kind of um, attributes. But if, if, the, if it was an academic question, you know, gee, could we build a model that discriminated against people by race, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's not hard to do. Could we build a model that discriminated against people by age? Well, we could just create a rule that says if somebody's over 55, we don't, we don't hire them or we don't fund them or we don't insure them. I mean, the goal should not be to discriminate, but the goal the, to build such models with a desire to understand the underlying you know, challenges and risk and complexities then I think it's a fair, you know, idea to go ahead and build such models so that we can use that intelligence to do better, you know, in well, developing. This is um, in the banking world. There's a there's a, a concept called disparate impact, which is um, discrimination that was unintended on your part that occurs, and the way that disparate impact is measured is that once a decision is made without regard to, to race or age or gender, you then want to analyze the outcomes and see if, in fact, um, you have unintentionally discriminated against someone. But that's an after-the-fact measure. So the algorithm itself still has to not discriminate, but you can determine whether it's doing its job effectively um, by looking at it after the fact in a disparate impact study. And I think you're going to see that in many, many areas. Right, right, right. No, I mean, I understand that from analysis and study perspective. Now, uh, talking about the, you know, studying and for education perspective, you know, building models, have there been any comparison of the types of technological approaches used in intelligent computing, such as constraint-based reasoning, neural networks, machine learning, and the types of problems that they could address 
for healthcare industry broadly or for financial industry if you're talking about you know yeah. industries? Um, there, there's a great many uh, academic papers that have been written that do exactly that, that go into uh, taking a sample problem and then testing it using neural networks versus support vector machines um, versus expert systems, and then benchmarking all those. Um, so there's a, there's a great deal of literature that, that deals with, with those topics. And um, I, I would always point out to people that the best approach to a problem is the one that works. Um, and to not assume that there's any one methodology that's better than others. Um, case-based reasoning is something that kind of had its heyday, you know, some time ago, along with uh, rule-based expert systems. You really don't hear much about CBR anymore. Uh, I don't know anybody who's really working on it. People have moved on to statistical machine learning and, um, and deep learning. Deep learning is the hot topic for today. I mean, everybody's talking about it. The problem with deep learning is it essentially is a way, it's, it's viewing the world in a very visual sense. So it works in the way that um, visual recognition tasks work. It's very good at capturing uh, a complex state of, of pixels or luminescence values in a photograph and um, making sense of those things. Um, it's not nearly as effective in, um, in a large range of tasks that are not similar to visual or speech recognition. So you see a great role for, or I see a great role for machine learning in self-driving cars, in music recognition. Yes. Um, I don't see a great role for deep learning um, in, say, cancer diagnostics, where the average sample set that you look at has 20 records in it. You know, cancer studies don't have millions of records. So... Yes. Um, and so deep learning. We don't have that many records because there is no collective data available. I mean, across nations, there are so many millions of, you know, cancer cases. So if everyone works together, if we have that ability to have the collective data of all nations and all the cancer, you know, patients and diagnoses, then we will be able to come up with something really very useful there. Yes, if you can get everyone to agree to use the same process and normalize the data in the same way. Um, Maybe we should develop a blockchain-based system, whereas, you know, the healthcare industry has to use that. And all the information that is available, all the diagnoses that are happening, without putting any human face to it, that data is available. Because we are not, we should not be interested in which human has, you know, which disease, but we should be able to get access to how many cases are, you know, there all across nations and what kind of, you know, environment that they were living in and what kind of cancer they have developed. So there will be a lot of uh, data available for analysis if we use blockchain and artificial intelligence together. And talking about that, you know, I mean, you have been working on uh, this cancer detection, and I'm sure there are a lot of others also working towards that to use artificial intelligence towards uh, cancer detection. But has there been any effort towards uh, identifying deadly pathogens in the human ecosystem? Because if we are able to go at that micro level and the, uh, have an ability 
to detect cancer using artificial intelligence and we should be able to scan the environment very quickly to have the sensors everywhere uh, that uses artificial intelligence the internet using internet of things we should be able to collect the data of what pathogens what deadly pathogens viruses bacteria or kinds of you know uh, pathogens are out there and where when there is more you know and what kind of diseases we are going to have where is the source what is the source all this should be very easy to detect if we put our effort towards that well i i mean i think you're on to something i i think i take issue with the easy uh, part Um, if we are able to diagnose cancer then doing this should not be that difficult as cancer well if you, I mean. if you talk about environmental factors though you know environmental factors aren't steady state right so if you go into someone's home and you take an air sample um so you're certainly not going to see every pathogen that that person is exposed to they may have been exposed walking through um a train station so um the the idea of of you know how do we determine all the environmental exposures um th- that's quite a difficult task when when an epidemiologist looks at um you know the outbreak of of a disease or a cancer cluster you know they'll do things like they'll take water samples from the community water they'll take soil samples they'll take air samples um they'll look at the food chain they'll look at all these things but this is not a generalized sort of thing this is this is in response to a specific occurrence and you have to tailor the collection process and analysis to to that specific um uh, process um so so i think it's still uh, yes i mean these are these are very good things to work on i think that that getting to a point where we have kind of a universal database of environmental exposure is um a rather daunting task and and then we have to be sure that we reach the right conclusions um from the data and to me one of the most famous examples you know there was a uh the china study uh in in which in the 60s there was a great deal of data collected from chinese health records and uh particularly uh cancers by by chinese uh states and there was a very famous book that was written by a gentleman who strongly believed that vegetarian diets were much healthier and his point was that there are cancers that are much more likely to occur in areas where large quantities of meat are consumed. So that was his thesis. And he presented a lot of information to validate that thesis. The problem was that there were also cancers that were much more prevalent in vegetarian communities. The other part of the problem was that if you look at why people in certain areas ate a lot of meat it's because they had a higher standard of living because they were factory workers well the higher standard of living came with a much greater risk of environmental exposure to carcinogenic chemicals and uh air pollutants so the fact that you saw an uptick in lung cancer 
in cities where people were mostly worked in manufacturing and also ate meat hardly validates the, the, the model that vegetarianism prevents cancer. So you, you have to be very careful about the conclusions that you draw. Of course, of course, because see, it's not about vegetarian diet or non-vegetarian diet. It's about how healthy human body is. There are a lot of factors that come into play, you know. So it's not just one aspect, what you have eaten that makes you like that. How much stress you have, what kind of environmental exposure you have, and many other factors that come into play. So, but, but the fact is that with artificial intelligence and with Internet of Things and sensors that are coming across, and if you are able to develop blockchain-based systems and use all this collectively together, then there is a hope that we will be able to bring such powerful difference. We will be able to solve so many big problems that, you know, nations are facing, human, humans are facing and humanity is facing. So there is a lot of hope in the promise of this technological advancement. So, but let me ask you this, Mark, if you have the power to influence making artificial intelligence work for everyone across nations, where would you like to see the development happening? Well, I, I'd like to see um, more development or, or an increased pace in development in the biomedical area. I think that that's the area that's going to have the greatest impact on the human condition. Um, you know, certainly there's quite a lot of work going on with artificial intelligence in, say, um, ad bidding in, um, you know, on the internet, right? Controlling what ads you see. Um, that's a case where there's an economic incentive to do it, but it, it hardly makes our lives better. Um, whereas in the, in the biomedical field, I think it offers a great deal of promise um, for improving the lives of, of millions and, and millions of people. So th that would be the area of focus that I'd like to see. Um, you know, I think we're going to see continued advancement in autonomous vehicles. That's probably a very big next step. Um, I can certainly see delivery vehicles and, and trucks um, moving to an autonomous uh, system. But it would still be with a human driver, you know, um, being able to override the system. But I think that you're probably going to see um, uh, more sophisticated systems that prevent accidents by potentially overriding an omission of the driver or governing uh, a, a driver's ability to, you know, to, to speed excessively or prevent a driver from running through a red light by... Um, by an override system. So I, I think we're, we're going to see, you know, a lot of work in that area. Uh, drone technology, I think, is going to continue to advance. I think probably the most important aspect of drone technology moving forward is the implementation of, of um, swarm algorithms for guidance. The notion that um, when, uh, when birds fly, um, they don't use maps, they don't use GPS, they have a rather sophisticated uh, system of measuring the distance between other birds, and you don't see them crash into each other very often. So I think there's a, a lot to be learned from these kind of algorithms modeled upon nature in things like flight management. Um, the military certainly is working on a lot of applications of 
of swarm technology because if you could create um, uh, dumb missiles that uh, simply followed each other to a target, you could deploy many thousands of missiles at very low cost. That's not what I would have hoped for the first implementation of swarm technology, but um, but it, it will have civilian application as well. Yes, yes. So it seems now. I mean, there is a lot of research going on. There are a lot of there is a lot of investment going on. There are a lot of progress and advancement happening when it comes to machine learning and artificial intelligence and intelligent machines. But all that you see happening across major corporations, you know, like Google or, you know, Facebook or uh, IBM or, you know, some Chinese corporations and also, you know, some uh, smaller corporations and also at some, you know, universities. But do you see a possibility of effective democratization of intelligent machines that, you know, every single human being will be able to benefit? Because at this point, it looks like, you know, the people or the entities that would be able to benefit are going to be largely corporations and uh, it, the benefits probably would not go to each and every single human being uh, so do you believe do you see that that you know human uh, there will be a democratization of intelligent machines and if not what, where do you see the obstacles that you know that would prevent the democratization well i, I i'd want to you know kind of unpack what you mean by benefit um if Apple so direct benefits and there are indirect benefits. Yes, they will be able to benefit from the products that come out based on artificial intelligence. But will they be able to independently benefit? It's like encryption. So far, you know, encryption over the years, it used to benefit only, you know, governments and, you know, some uh, other corporations. But now we are at a point that each and every individual benefits from encryption technologies which is, you know, which has its own risk and rewards. But similarly, the artificial intelligence based intelligent machines, would each and every individual human being be able to benefit directly from that? Well, if, if Siri makes my phone more useful for me, I derive benefit from it. You can argue that, well, that's, that's really to the benefit of Apple from a monetary standpoint. Um, but I think you could apply that to, to any product. You know, if, if we enjoy drinking coffee, ultimately that profits uh, coffee roasters and distributors and growers. Um, it doesn't benefit us, but I still like drinking coffee. Um, so that, that's part of the equation. Are, are we going to see a, a system where anyone can build um, an artificial intelligence tool and sell it. I think we already see that. Um, you can, for instance, sign up for uh, free API access at Amazon, Microsoft, uh, Google, uh, HP, my, uh, any of these companies uh, offer free trials for their AI uh, platforms for experimentation to try to foster innovation. So I think anybody can leverage that and build something new and create a company that will benefit them. So I think it is there is democratization in the sense that uh, a lot of these large companies are open sourcing or releasing the technology into the wild. Now they're doing it for selfish reasons. They want people to use their technology 
and they want people to build tools based upon their technology, which which will benefit them. But um, it's not like you can't work in AI today unless you go to work for Google. It's yes. quite the opposite. Uh, anybody can work with it. Yes, but yeah. it's very complex. Anybody can work in it, but it's very complex. It's not easy to develop the algorithm like that. And at the same time, if everybody, I mean, democratization also brings a lot of security risk. If uh, each and every human being is able to develop such complex you know, algorithms, which could benefit or hurt you know, humanity. We don't know what kind of algorithms they will develop. So a lot of factors you know, and variables come into play, but there is no question that society is shaped by advances in science and the technologies it creates and by humans' use of them. So like many other individuals, entities, and initiatives, your organization is also trying to further advances in science and technology, and we thank you for that. But do you feel that the advances in science that you all are working on is a cause of celebration or a cause of concern? Uh, it, it all depends how it's implemented uh, and what it's used for. Um, I think that there's been a great deal written in the, the, the public press or, or the popular press about the dangers of AI, which is envisioning something that doesn't exist. I mean, as, as someone pointed out, I, I think Andrew Nig pointed out, um, worrying about um, the dangers of AI, of a general artificial intelligence, is kind of like worrying about overpopulation on Mars. We, we haven't gotten there yet. Um, it's really not an issue. Um, and so I, I don't see a large-scale um, threat of artificial intelligence just because it just isn't that good. Um, it, it's not very effective. Um, you know, it's like if you created a, um, you know, a, a, a massive new weapon that could destroy everybody on Earth, that would be a great threat. But what if it didn't work? I mean, what if there was no possibility for it to work? Well, then it's not really a threat at all. It's just a perception. And I, I think there's this perception that artificial intelligence presents a threat. Um, but I don't think it does. Uh, additionally, I think that we have um, changes in our economic base. We have changes in um, our workload and, and workflow. And, you know, at one point, one of the most popular jobs in New York City was um, honey wagon driver. That is, people who rode around and shoveled up horse manure because it was a massive amount of horse manure being generated in New York before the advent of automobiles. Um, with the advent of automobiles, um, there was no need for um, honey wagon drivers. So we did see uh, there was speculation that, oh my God, these thousands upon thousands of people were all going to starve to death because all they know how to do is, is shovel manure. Well, somehow... The advent of automobiles didn't destroy the economy of New York. The people who used to shovel manure moved on to do other things, and um, the technology improved the overall state of New York um, or, or, or the state of life. In the, in the same thing, when we talk, um, like today, we have this argument about uh, coal miners are being put out of work, right? 
Well, coal miners are being put out of work because there's no clean way to burn coal. And coal is, is a massive cause of pollution. And we simply can't afford to be burning it for the generation of electricity. Um, so we have this situation where, well, are we going to be unfair to coal miners who want to continue mining coal? Are we going to be unfair to the rest of us who need to breathe? Um, well, we have to look at the overall benefit and we have to find ways to transition coal miners into other forms of employment that aren't environmentally damaging. Um, but that's, you know, when we talk about um, doing away with coal mining, we're not talking about doing away with coal miners. Um, we're talking about repositioning them into, into other fields, retraining, redeployment. So... I think yes. the technology works the same way. Yes, very true, very true. So Mark, thank you so much for participating okay. in the Roundup Roundup today. We appreciate your thoughtful insight on artificial intelligence, machine learning, and intelligence systems. And I'm sure our global viewers and listeners will benefit tremendously from the understanding you provided on the application of intelligent machines across you know, several industries from financial industry to healthcare industries and the opportunities and risk associated with the advances in technology and non-human intelligence. So even if a single individual or entity is able to come up with ideas to advance machine learning, innovate to develop intelligence systems for the complex challenges facing nations and manage its associated security risk based on the understanding they received from this discussion we had today, this risk roundup dialogue has been of service, and we thank you for that, Mark. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. It was great to talk to you. Wonderful, Mark. So as all forms of computers and machines are getting faster and more powerful due to advances in artificial intelligence, and they acquire an ability to think, it is important to evaluate whether artificial intelligence is the next step in our human evolutionary journey. Now, considering that it is the next step in our human evolutionary journey, it is important that we evaluate and understand the impact it will have on each individual and entities across nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia. As the evolving story of non-human or machine intelligence and intelligent computing brings advanced algorithms, pattern matching, rules, machine learning, deep learning, and cognitive computing, to solve problems typically performed by the humans, the concerns that in the coming years, human intelligence systems will not be able to solve complex problems surrounding them in cyberspace, geospace, and space on its own is getting very real. Risk Group Cybersecurity Risk Research Center and Strategic Security Risk Research Center are created for this very reason to identify, evaluate, and manage the risk-facing NGIOA in CGS, that means nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia in cyberspace, geospace, and space, and discuss, debate, and define necessary frameworks, structure, processes, tools, and technologies to manage the security risk of not only the digital global age, but also of the coming technological superconvergence. We at Risk Group believe that risk management security and peace walk together hand in hand. Though security is related to management of threats and peace to the management of conflict, risk management is related to management of security vulnerabilities as well as management of conflict. It is not possible to conceive any one of the three without the existence of the other two. All three concepts feed into each other. 
we believe that the security we build for ourselves is precarious and uncertain until it is secure for everyone across nations. Tradition becomes our security. So if we build a culture of managing risk effectively, it will lead us to security and security will lead us to peace. Let's manage the existing and emerging risk together. For more information on the risk roundups, to watch the risk roundup videos or hear the risk roundup podcast, please go to riskgroupllc.com and do not forget to subscribe and share. Until next time, I'm Jayashree Pandya, host of Risk Roundup, signing off. See you next time. Thank you.